At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Hello everyone, I'm James Abbott and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross, our monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Now, an awful lot of water has passed under the bridge since our summer podcast. You may remember we did a podcast for July and August. We're now, of course, into September. And not only do we have a new prime minister in the shape of Liz Truss, who won the race to lead the Conservative Party and hence has become our new PM. But just two days after she visited Balmoral, where she was asked to form a government by Her Majesty the Queen, we received the very sad news that our longest-serving monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, had died at the age of 96. Now, Canon Chris Thomas, our General Secretary, sitting opposite me, we've just had the funeral at Westminster Abbey, but I wanted to start by asking you what your abiding memories are of the Queen. Well, I was um, at home when the news came in of the Queen's death, I'd been at the abbatial blessing of our colleague here, Abbot Paul Gunter, and uh, I'd come back from Dowie Abbey. Obviously, during the Mass, my phone was off and in my uh, in my bag. So uh, when I got back into the car, I no- noticed the abundant number of messages about the Queen's health, and so I came back immediately to London and was deeply saddened at 6.30 when the news came in uh, of the death of the Queen. First of all, I think I have to say that Cardinal Nichols at the Requiem Mass at Westminster Cathedral the day after the announcement of the uh, death of the Queen was absolutely right and correct when he said that it is the duty of our Catholic community in this country to pray for the repose of her soul. And in doing so, we do what we do for any Christian soul that dies. We commend them to Almighty God. We ask the Lord to be merciful in his judgment because we all have to face judgment from a queen to a pauper because We all need that grace of God in our life to sustain us in the ways of justice and truth and then to welcome her into the company of the saints. And God willing, through that process, she will be reunited with her beloved husband, Prince Philip, who died during the COVID period. You ask about abiding memories. Well, for me, to see her sat on her own at Prince Philip's funeral in St George's Chapel, Windsor, did bring a tear to my eye. She... Really, you know, she, she she had to do what was right. At that time, I can remember presiding at a funeral in Westminster Cathedral when the cathedral clergy had been uh, exposed to COVID and weren't able to function. And I can remember celebrating that funeral mass in the cathedral and there were 14 people there and we were like peas in a drum. And thank God we had the live stream to be able to, to live stream the mass to those who couldn't come. But it was my only experience, because as you know, I don't work in a parish. I work here at the Bishop's Conference. It was my only experience of the desolation that that can bring. And for Her Majesty to sit there on her own with nobody around her, my heart went out to her that day. But in all these things, in her personal tribulations, not only at that time, but throughout her reign, those things that have, have touched her very personally, she's been indefatigable in her approach to these things. She, I mean, she's, she was the Queen during the totality of my lifetime. I mean, I was only born in 1969, and so uh, she was happily reigning when I entered the world. So it's a big change, a big change indeed. But, but I do have another memory, <laughs> which I know you're, you're smiling <laughs> I'm at. I'm itching to get that out. Uh, a few years ago, I, can't, I, think, I think it was 2018, 
I had my usual meeting with the cardinal, and uh, I happened to mention to him that I'd met three popes, but I'd never met the queen. And he, I, I thought nothing of it, I just threw it into a conversation. We were actually going out to Rome to meet the Holy Father as part of the Santa Marta group. And about a couple of months later, suddenly a letter appeared in my postbox from the Lord Chamberlain's office, commanding me to be present at the Royal Garden Party, which I was absolutely amazed by. But what was even more amazing was within it was a ticket to the Royal Tea Tent. And uh, I went to see the Cardinal and, and uh, Cardinal says, oh yes, you're my plus one for the day, uh, which I, I found rather amusing. So we, we, we went over and he said to me, the Queen may not be there, we don't know, but she was. And uh, in the Royal Tea Tent, she came up she greeted me, and well, she greeted the cardinal first, and uh, he introduced me. And I told her a story from my youth of when I played the recorder for her in 1977 in her Jubilee, Silver Jubilee tour, and how she gave me such a smile. I was so beguiled by it, I couldn't play anymore. And she giggled. She was totally engaged with me for that short moment when I was uh, talking to her. And afterwards, the cardinal said, I wish I could have taken a photograph, because uh, it was a uh, just a remarkable thing. Because, to be honest... James, even I had to stoop low to speak to her eye to eye because she's tiny. She was tiny, and but her eyes were beautifully blue and her conversation with me, I will treasure for the rest of my days because she was a truly remarkable woman and we will miss her. But what we have seen over the last week or so is what we do so well in this country, which is the transition of power. We have a new king who has been solemnly proclaimed we look forward now to whenever the coronation will take place and we will always hold, even though he is our king and rightly so, we will always have a very special place in our hearts for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth because of the way in which her reign was unsurpassed by anybody else and the way in which she conducted herself with great dignity uh, through those 70 years. And uh, you mentioned... King Charles III. Now, he, I remember once, many moons ago, he said he wanted to be defender of faiths, plural. He's obviously a religious man, isn't he? So are we expecting to have a fairly close relationship with him? Well, I think we already have one. I know that he represented Her Majesty the Queen at the canonisation of St John Henry Newman, and he thoroughly enjoyed it. The relationship that he has with, certainly with Cardinal Nichols, is a very positive uh, relationship. And I hope that His Majesty will be able to work with all of our church leaders. Even though he said that he wanted to be defenders of faiths, you know, the Queen, don't forget, in 2012, said at a meeting of religious leaders in Lambeth Palace that she felt it was the duty of the Church of England to actually uphold the right of all faiths to be able to worship in the way that they wish. Mm. And for all people had to have that freedom of worship. So, you know, yes, King Charles may have said that, but uh, you know, Her Majesty the Queen also understood that as part of the role of the Church of England as well. And with that in mind, you know, you said you're you're not really a parish priest per se at the moment, but mm. you you were in a parish a few weeks ago. And tell us a little bit about how you found from the Catholic community that sort of, you know, during a time of national mourning that grief. I was amazed at the number of gentlemen who turned up with black ties to mass that Sunday, and also the number of ladies who wore slightly more sombre clothing. We had a solemn requiem for Her Majesty, which was beautiful. We had the official prayers for the death of the Queen, for uh, the consolation of the royal family and for the sustaining of our new King, and we sang the national anthem. It was a very, very lovely occasion, and a lot of people 
said that they were deeply moved by the Queen's passing, the Queen's death, but they were also very hopeful in uh, the way that King Charles had spoken to the country, had taken the oaths and had been proclaimed as our rightful and loyal king. Indeed. Well, look, if you want to visit our website, cbcew.org.uk, we do in fact have a very full archive on uh, the death of Her Majesty the Queen and um, obviously praying for King Charles III. Right, now moving on somewhat, we have already had quite a lot on our plates this month. We've had Education Sunday and just recently Evangelii Gaudium Sunday, which you and I spoke about on our previous podcast. Now, we also have the World Day of Migrants and Refugees. That's a day that always falls on the last Sunday of September. This year, that's the 25th. And after we've had our regular monthly catch-up that we're having now, we'll hear from our lead bishop for Migrants and Refugees. That's Bishop Paul McAleenan. He's got a little reflection for us on Pope Francis' message for the day and talks about the need to help those in genuine need and those seeking a better life on our shores. But not only that... We have two bishops for the price of one this month, so um, it kind of escaped your attention that we're deep into the season of creation, a full month in which we celebrate God's great gift of this world and how we can be better custodians of it in the face of the climate crisis. And I'm joined as well by Bishop John Arnold of Salford, who has our environment brief, and he will talk to us about the season of creation and the call of creation, which is the bishop's document that has recently been updated and is shortly to be released. So plenty to talk about there. Now, I'm not going to ignore the acute cost of living crisis, Father Chris, because we've spoken about that a little bit off mic. Um, We're battling through that at the moment. And we do have content on our website, again, cbcw.org.uk slash cost hyphen of hyphen living hyphen crisis. But if you just put in cost of living crisis into the search facility on that site, you will get all our content. We'll have far more on that in October. But we do have some important issues to cover now. Uh, Father Chris. So in a minute, we'll talk about the Jubilee year in 2025, which might seem like some years away, but there's plenty in the lead up and it will certainly be a special year of grace for us as Catholics. But first of all, Synod. Now, we've passed an important milestone in that we're moving into the continental phase, aren't we? That's right. So I had some correspondence with the Synod office this week, and um, I think 107 bishops' conferences, the Roman Curia, the Dicasteries of the Roman Curia, uh, and other organisations had sent in their synthesis to the office. And so there's going to be a, um, a gathering of the international team from all of the continents in Italy, which will produce a document for the continental phase. Now, what this is going to do is it's going to highlight the main themes out of those syntheses that came from uh, all of those uh, organisations, bishops' conferences, etc. And that's going to come back for reflection and comment. And so we won't be going over old stuff, as it were, because I think that what we've got at the moment in each of the diocesan reports, in each of the, uh, 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 in our national synthesis and on the bishop's reflection, is actually a very, very good starting point for us to think about the mission of the church in England and Wales. Mm. Uh, and I think that if, if dioceses can use that to develop their pastoral planning, the way that they want to become missionary disciples proclaiming the gospel of Christ in uh, these lands, I think that that's a really good starting point. 
But we will have to participate in this continental phase as well. But the interesting thing is, I'm afraid, with the, the Synod Office again, is that they haven't told us how to do it or how we should be approaching it. So we, we, we do need more information from them, but I'm sure that that'll come in due time. As our part in the continental right. phase. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you say, the national synthesis, it's not an easy document to produce, but having read it myself, I do feel that it is accessible. It's not drowning people in the themes. And as you say, you've always said, it's a starting position, isn't yes. it? It's yes. not not the be-all and end-all. It's supposed to stimulate those conversations in our diocese and, and yes. in our parishes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that the... As I said, you know, the content that dioceses have produced, I must think think of it as a process in both ways. Mm. So so we, we've got each diocesan report. We've got our national synthesis. So that's gone off to Rome. But really, it also has to go back to the diocese, to the organisations and think, right, what are we going to do that's actually going to make this an important part of our thinking of how the church needs to be in the locality, in the local church, in the diocese? So we don't lose all of that incredible material that people have already spoken about. And I suppose one challenge, and it really is a challenge, is we made an estimate that I would say that less than 10% of people actually participated in the last phase, as in the Dossison phase, in the local church phase. Now, if we go back and, and look again at that material, how do we begin to get those voices that didn't say anything? What's their concerns about the church? Maybe they don't have any, I don't know. But it's better to know than, than to speculate. Mm. And so if people can actually draw more people into the conversation, I think that that's a, a very, very important thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you say, perhaps the, the shape of the engagement, we need to wait and see for mm. a little while. But we are pretty much halfway through the process, aren't we? we right. I mean, I remember at the start, we looked at it and went, wow, that's quite a lengthy process. But you know, time That's doesn't right. wait for anybody. No, and, 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 you know, don't forget that the actual gathering of the bishops in Synod mm. takes place, you know, in, in October 2023. So, uh, so it's only a year away now, really. Yeah. Really is creeping up. Well, I mean, I'm sure on future podcasts, you'll give us further updates on, on where we're at with there. But yeah, let's hope for further engagement, hearing more voices, more perspectives. That would be grand. Now, another thing we're just about halfway through is the tour of the relics of St. Bernadette. I remember right at the very start, Cardinal Nichols declaring Lourdes has come to Westminster and there have been several events post that. I mean, I know obviously with the death of Her Majesty the Queen, that's uh, you know slightly distracted us from that. But that is ongoing. And we were going to talk about pilgrimage, weren't we, to an extent. But in the context of the Jubilee year in 2025, again, some three years from hence, but... It doesn't just start in 2025, does it? We, we have the two years leading up, 2023, 2024. It's supposed to bring us to 2025, isn't it? That's right. And, and the important thing about it is that, you know, we, we've had a concept of jubilee in the church since uh, Pope Boniface VIII instituted the Holy Year in 1300. So uh, it, it's a long-standing tradition in, in our church. The last jubilee, well, the jubilee I remember most, I would say, was the great jubilee of 2000. And I can remember that. It was it was a remarkable year. I was still living in Rome at the time as a seminarian. And so uh, Rome was absolutely buzzing with pilgrims from all over the world coming and making the pilgrimages to the four patriarchal basilicas to go through the holy door and to enter into that life and prayer and praise of God for um, the gift of 2,000 years of the Incarnation. We've had other jubilees. We had the Jubilee of Mercy a few years ago, if you mm, remember. Indeed. And so, um, you know, we have um, an idea of jubilee. It's a Hebrew understanding of normally the 50th year is a fallow year, a year of rejoicing. And we've Christianized that. 
and we celebrate jubilees now in, in, in various different ways. So the 2025 jubilee, it has the theme Pilgrims of Hope. And Archbishop Fisichella, who is the pro-prefect for the dicastery for evangelization for the section about the new evangelization and questions about the understanding of our faith, has said that um, there will be two years of preparation for this, 2023 and 2024. So 2023 will be called the year of the council. And the reason that he's saying that is because on October the 11th this year, 2022, the Holy Father will celebrate a Mass celebrating the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. People have heard about Vatican II, but do they actually know what Vatican II talked about? That's the reason why this first year of preparation for the Jubilee is going to be to look at four documents in particular of the Council, the four constitutions as we call them. The first is called Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is about the liturgical life of the Church. The second is called Lumen Gentium, which is about the very structure of the Church itself on the constitution of the Church. The third is called Dei Verbum, which is about divine revelation and how the Church understands how God has revealed himself in the world. And the fourth is called Gaudium et Spes, which was a pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world. And what Archbishop Fisichella is asked is that we concentrate on those four keystone documents of Vatican II to try and deepen our understanding of what was being said then because the richness of these four documents still really hasn't been tapped as it were. If we talk to my colleague uh, Father Jan who works here he will always say that we need to still enter into a constant receiving of the content of the documents of Vatican II so that we understand not only what was said, but how to interpret what was said for today's church. And shockingly, we'll be in 2024 in about 15, 16 months' time. So what's going on then? Well, in 2024, that's going to be the year of prayer. And there's going to be a focus on the Lord's Prayer and the understanding of the Lord's Prayer from how it's developed, especially with the fathers of the church. So there'll be a lot of commentaries and catechesis about how to enter into a deeper understanding of prayer. And obviously, Jubilee has at its heart prayer. So we'll look at the year of the council and then the year of the prayer, and that will take us into 2025 and the very Jubilee year itself. And of course, in 2023, with the year of the council, and particularly with the, the deepening of the understanding of what was said in the Council, we also have that Synod of Bishops in October 2023 as well, which was something that grew out of the Council itself as a, a permanent means of the Holy Father being able to talk to bishops without having to call them all to Rome itself. Now, I'm going to risk saying we're still a Christian country. I know some might take exception to that, but I believe we are still a Christian country. Now, the Lord's Prayer... I mean, it obviously means a lot. And a load of people do know the Lord's Prayer, even if they don't go to church. They do know the Lord's Prayer. It's one of those constants that maybe they've had since they were very, very young. And a simple but very, very powerful prayer. And I've had people say to me when they've been in really acute difficulty, I've tried to pray. I'm struggling to pray. I've tried all, all sorts of prayers and I haven't been able to focus my mind. But if there's one prayer that I can hold my focus on and I can simply feel I can connect to God. It's the Lord's Prayer. So it's very, it might be straightforward and it might be well known, but it's extremely powerful, isn't it? Oh, it, it, it is. And uh, I often think that um, 
you know, as it were, familiarity can breed contempt even. And we can say the Lord's Prayer without even thinking about what we're saying, because as soon as we begin, we become in chorus with those around us and we're not even thinking about the words. But, you know, when we simply use the first two words, our Father, you know, we are addressing the God who has created us and the God who sustains us when we say, give us our daily bread. And then the merciful God, forgive us our trespasses. But in asking for that mercy, you know, we also have to be merciful ourselves. And there's that balance of forgiveness that God will be merciful to us, but we too have to be merciful to each other. It is a remarkable prayer. It is one of those go-to prayers. I mean, I say it three times a day at least, if not more. And, and I find it a great consolation, simply because I suppose it is, as you quite rightly said, it's a prayer that I've grown up with from my earliest years. And we've featured the Lord's Prayer on, on, our, on our podcasts in different languages and the richness that comes from yeah. different languages as well. So I think that that year of prayer with the focus on the Lord's Prayer will actually be a, a blessing for everybody. You notice I was sneaking out a mini meditation on the Lord's Prayer from you then. Oh, just a, <laughs> well, if you want a really good meditation on the Lord's Prayer, I think that Cardinal Basil Hume's meditation is one of the finest. Well worth uh, tracking down that one. Shouldn't be too difficult either. Well, I mean, there's much more that can be said about that, and, and we certainly shall do. But talking about the Lord's Prayer and connecting with the Lord... You mentioned Dave Verbum. That might be a good way of segueing into a scriptural reflection. You see what I did there? Oh, you did very well. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you got for us when well, we look to the word of the Lord? Just a, um, It sort of ties in two themes, really. And uh, in the first reading, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for the first reading from the prophecy of Amos that we had on the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Time. He wasn't from a, a prophetic family had a quite a boring job, actually. He was a shepherd of sycamore trees. When they came into season, he used to have to pierce the fruit to prevent them from going sour. He reluctantly had God call him to be a prophet, coming from the southern kingdom and went up to the north. He was a foreigner. And with Bishop McAleenan speaking about migrants and, and refugees, you know, sometimes the foreigner can give us an insight that we don't see ourselves. What did he see when he went north? Well, exploitation of the poor, the rich buying up the poor for a pair of sandals, as it says in the gospel, uh, fat women on fine divans bawling to the sound of the harp. He is quite descriptive in his account. These people had worked hard for their riches, but they had exploited the poor. And he addressed the question about justice. The thing is, why couldn't they see what was wrong? Why did they need this foreigner to tell them? And that really is a challenge because, you know, an outsider can come with a more open mind, which isn't restricted by the way in which we can often wed ourselves to particular solutions. And secondly, the outsider can also ask questions, which we often can take for granted. Why do you do that? Just to give a very mundane example, that's why some people find marriage counselling easy, because somebody from outside can see something that the couple can't see themselves. Or in a work situation, sometimes you bring in a facilitator uh, to lead a day which helps us to move forward rather than actually be trapped in our own ideas. So the prophecy of Amos is about listening because often those, those voices can actually give us an in into changing and changing for the better. So really, we have to think now in translating, obviously, as we do the scriptures into our own situation, what are the voices that we listen to today? 
And I think that um, Pope Francis's voice is a very attentive voice because it is challenging in everything, really. It's no surprise to me. I mean, I was told by the Jesuits, you know, Pope Francis is, is speaks so often about justice and mercy and about the church thinking about its own mission. Again, coming back to the synod stuff, you know, what is our true mission? Have we become comfortable in what we've got as a structure rather than actually being effective ministers of the gospel? But at the end of the day, there's a single question which the Pope has put to us, you know, about the encounter that each one of us needs with the risen Christ every day. You know, what does it mean for us to actually be a Christian in today's world? What does it mean to actually take up our cross and follow him? What does it mean to actually allow our hearts to be changed by that encounter? God will always provide us with the right Pope at the right time. I've said before to people when I was growing up, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s now, but I can still remember the terror of Cold War. And when Pope St. John Paul came to be our Pope, you know, he proclaimed the gospel of hope and that we can get through this. And, you know, he was so instrumental, I believe, in the fall of communism. And then we had Pope Benedict, a very different man, but a man of deep faith. And he said, know your faith. And now we've got a Pope that says, love go out into the world and love. And the way that you love is by living out that justice and that mercy that comes from the teaching of Christ, which was echoed in the lives of the prophets. And the problem in the, when we go to the gospel of today, which is about the rich man and Lazarus, is that um, the rich man refused to listen. You know, He even says, send somebody back to tell my brothers, because if somebody rises from the dead, they will change. But in fact, somebody did rise from the dead and we still haven't changed. Because our, when our Lord rose from the dead, he gave us that means of translating all that he said into a way of living, a way of justice, truth and mercy. But we don't do it well. So today's challenge is who are the voices we listen to so that our hearts can be changed? I think we tend to have fairly short memories when things are comfortable, don't we? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. And once again, you've provided me with good segue fodder because we can move in to Bishop Paul McAleenan now talking to us about the Pope's message for the World Day for Migrants and Refugees. But for now, Canon Christopher Thomas, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, James. Hello and greetings to everyone. I am Bishop Paul McAleenan, the lead bishop for migrants and refugees on the Bishop's Conference of England and Wales. Every year, the Church throughout the world devotes a day to migrants and refugees. This year, 2022, the day will be celebrated on Sunday the 25th of September. You may think that this day, WDMR as it is called, World Day of Migrants and Refugees, is in response to the coverage of new arrivals to our country and migration. In fact, World Day of Migrants and Refugees has been held annually since 1914. An indication that displacement from one's homeland has long been a feature of life for many people. This day is an opportunity for Catholics throughout the world to remember and pray for those who are displaced through war, poverty and persecution, and also to raise awareness of the fact that migration offers opportunity to many people. It benefits many. In 2020, Pope Francis in his message said 
if we wish to promote those whom we wish to assist, then we must involve them and make them agents of their own redemption. In his message for this year, 2022, the Holy Father expands on those words by choosing the theme, Building the Future with Migrants and Refugees. In our parishes and in our neighbourhoods, we can see that migration is a reality. There are many people from other countries. Pope Francis appeals to us to adopt an attitude of welcome to those who live among us, reminding us that they can revitalize our communities and enliven our celebrations in our parishes. Their presence is a witness to the Catholicity of God's people. Without undermining or devaluing our own culture and values, we are asked to be open to the treasure and the variety of gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our communities. And it is edifying that many parishes are reaching out to migrants and refugees. I know of one group who, motivated by their faith and working ecumenically, invite migrants and refugees to English language conversation classes. That is an example of how Pope Francis's call to build the future together is being lived out. Two other events have taken place which portray the Church's commitment to migrants and refugees. In March of this year, the Papal Nuncio, that is, the Pope's representative to Great Britain, visited Napier Barracks in Folkestone, where a number of people are housed. He spent time with them. He conveyed to them both the concern and the best wishes of Pope Francis. He returned at a later date to present a papal blessing personally signed by the Holy Father. In October 2021, a 3.5 metre high puppet called Amal was welcomed in Westminster Cathedral to music and dance and a great atmosphere of prayer. In cathedrals, in parish halls, in holding centres, the love of God is being extended to those who are marginalised, to those who are poor and in need. And I thank everyone involved in this wonderful work. We are also grateful to those who, using their professional expertise, advocate the cause of migrants and refugees. In weighty matters and in smaller but essential ways, the love of God is being extended and migrants and refugees are receiving a welcome from God's people and encouragement which is much needed. It is work that must increase and must continue. I ask you to pray and to remember migrants, refugees, displaced persons through war, persecution, climate change and all those on the move seeking a better life on Sunday the 25th of September, World Day of Migrants and Refugees. May God give us all of the grace to work together with migrants and refugees to build a better future. Lord, 
make us bearers of hope, so that where there is darkness, your light may shine, and where there is discouragement, confidence in the future may be reborn. Lord, make us instruments of your justice, so that where there is exclusion, fraternity may flourish, and where there is greed, a spirit of sharing may grow. Lord, make us builders of your kingdom, together with migrants and refugees, and with all who dwell on the peripheries. Lord, let us learn how beautiful it is to live together as brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen, and thanks very much to Bishop Paul McAleenan for his message for the World Day of Migrants and Refugees. Now, you may of course be listening to us after the day itself, the 25th of September. It's not a problem. You can still access all our content by visiting www.cbcew.org.uk slash WDMR. Moving on, and I promised you earlier that we'd hear from two of our bishops on this podcast – True to my word, it's time to catch up with Bishop John Arnold, our lead bishop for the environment. September is a month-long time of prayer and action in the Catholic Church in which we celebrate the season of creation. This concludes on the 4th of October, the great feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Now, in tandem with this, we have updated the bishop's 2002 teaching document on the environment, The Call of Creation, Two decades have obviously passed since then, so definitely a, a timely thing to do. So let's have a chat with Bishop John Arnold about the new document, the climate crisis more generally, and what we as Catholics can do about it. Well, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Bishop John Arnold, who is the Bishop of Salford, our lead bishop on the environment, and also the chair of CAFOD. Bishop John, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Well, we're fundamentally going to talk about the Call of Creation, which was uh, the Bishop's teaching document on the environment, released in 2002, unbelievably, some 20 years ago. And, and I know it was revised along the way by CAFOD, but we are now re-releasing in 2022. Just tell me why we're doing this now. Well, I, I think the world was woken up a great deal by Laudato Si, the encyclical and uh, that did a great service to not just to the people of the church, but to the world. But still, we're not acting quickly enough. And if you look at the statistics that are emerging, even by the day now, we really are making a terrible mess of the environment. And it's having an appalling impact already on so many people around the world. The news, Pakistan 33 million people directly affected by climate change. With uh, Japan, with uh, Namandol typhoon, 3 million people evacuated. Got Puerto Rico, a typhoon. We've got Alaskan storms. We've got the West States of the United States with their wildfires. We've got Kentucky with its ongoing flood damage. Really, it's an appalling state of affairs. And when are we going to make it urgent? to be effective in our response. And that's really before we mention war and, and other things that are going on in, in our world. And let's go back to your foreword for the call of creation in which you say a truly Catholic understanding of the environmental crisis. 
does not see it as a series of individual problems that need to be solved. Now, I find that very interesting. How should we then, as Catholics, respond to this environmental crisis? Well, I think uh, Pope Francis gives us a lead, doesn't he, when he says everything is connected and that each and every one of us has our part to play. Now, we've got to see climate change and the damage it's doing as not just a series of things that we can cure one by one. It's a matter of care for creation as a whole, which means changing our lifestyle and everyone has got to be part of it. It also includes, you know, our political actions. The war in Ukraine is an appalling, damaging feature in in the environment. It's a dreadful thing to be happening. It's affecting food supplies. It's uh, destroying property and very many people, it would appear in recent days, the evidence of the number of deaths that have not yet been accounted for. It's all connected. And we've got to have a global look, as Pope Francis says, and put these things together so that we can recognise a plan for all of us that we need to observe and to bring to completion in order to save our common home. Now, without getting too controversial, how do we deal with, because I think there might be something of a problem with the psychology behind action sometimes, you know, you'll get people saying, well, what about India, China, the US, ourselves, the big polluters? How can we sort of avoid individuals getting disheartened by these these big polluters, as it were, so that they carry on doing their bit, changing their relationship with the environment, going about it in a, in a positive way, thinking about their consumption, recycling. How do we keep their sort of spirits up that they're making a difference? Well, I think Christian hope has a great deal to do with this, that uh, we've not been defeated. And Pope Francis is very clear, we, we live on in hope, but our hope can't be just something that we put nicely on the windowsill and say it will happen. We've got to be part of this. And uh, it's all very well to feel very pessimistic about certain nations in the world and and what's going terribly wrong, and they're not amending or correcting their ways of uh, destroying the environment. But at the same time, we've got quite an upsurge of uh, popular understanding. People around the world, particularly young people, who are learning so much about the environment and wanting to make it a priority. Now, if our political leaders are going to lead us effectively, they've got to listen to us. And the more noise that we can make about the priority of the environment, I think uh, the better place we will be in, in persuading uh, governments around the world to make those actions which are necessary. Now, obviously, you're our lead bishop for the environment, and I won't ask you to speak for every diocese and and to tell us about every single church building, for instance. But in your experience and in your diocese, perhaps in particular, how are we getting on with um, our net zero, carbon net zero aims, emissions, efficiency, you know, in churches, schools and offices in our buildings? I think there is some good progress. We've got Guardians of Creation project, which is... um, Uh, effectively helping us to combine our thoughts, share our best practice. We certainly, as a church, we've got a lot of properties and we can do a great deal in terms of moving towards uh, net zero in carbon. We've got that sense of education going on. Certainly among the young people in my diocese, I, I do feel a real enthusiasm. We've got to try and make sure that we, uh, express our concerns about the environment in not in a frightening way for young people, but in a way that um, encourages them in their 
understanding of what they can be doing and what their families can be doing in terms of modifying our behaviour and uh, helping at a ground level with a care for the environment. But we've got a lot more to do. And it's very important that we as, as bishops speak out very firmly about the urgency of what we face and that as bishops, we also need to be approaching the politicians loudly and clearly about uh, what needs to be done and that they must lead. Yeah, well, we're talking of which, of course, we have the COP27 UN Climate Change Conference in Egypt in November. You talk about young people, but also we, we have Justice and Peace Networks, Laudato Si Animators. There are a number of groups in and around the church, aren't they, of, of potentially older people, actually, that, that can support the bishops and help guide and be a bit more active. What can we do to make our voices heard to those, you know, the world's decision makers ahead of November? Well, I think we've got to um, responsibly demonstrate what we believe. And uh, I think that's happening more and more. Yes, you, you refer to a number of organisations, and there certainly are a lot of organisations, both of Christian faith, other faiths, or of no particular faith, who are promoting good practice. But we've got to make sure that this education goes on, because when we know that we're responsible, I feel that we can react more sincerely and constructively in our actions. And talking about that, you know, being better formed, I suppose, understanding the theology and our, and our spirituality behind looking after the, the environment as good custodians of creation. How would you like people to interpret this revised Call of Creation document? Well, I think um, the, the tone of it is a very practical description of what's happened and the direction in which we're going. And I think it offers a sense of education that we can all be part of the way that we, we respond to the needs of our times and that we can do that in a sense which is promoted by our faith, that it's really part of our theology and our spirituality and that it's now something that we really need to turn our attention to because it underpins all the other difficulties that we have in our world. We're not going to solve poverty if we've not got an environment in which we can survive happily. We're not going to sort out people's lack of clean water if we're not caring for the environment. We've got to make sure that we know about our common home, that we appreciate the value of it, and that we are going to look after it and repair it, which is so important. But if we're looking for short-term things, which so many politicians look to you know, their term in office and wanting to be elected, and that really depends on how much prosperity they can engage for their people. And uh, this is a time when we can't just be looking to prosperity, but to the very survival of humankind, because we're not looking after that common home in which we live. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we, we know about custodianship and we can always do better with that. But I think this document is very relational, isn't it? It's, it's not just our relationship with the, the natural world as we see it. It expands beyond that. We mentioned war a bit earlier, relationship between peoples. But you touched on it there, and the document does, that obviously we say it, but we must repeat it, that the damage to the environment will affect the poor most of all, won't it, of course? You know, since most yes. of those poor communities inhabit the the worst affected and most vulnerable locations. You mentioned at the very start of this piece, you know, the flooding and, and the terrible situations around the world caused directly by by environmental damage. So um, do you see this as a relational document where it's, you know, it's not as simple as just sorting out our relationship with 
the, the created world. It's about sorting out our relationship with one another. Oh, certainly. And one of the things that looked so optimistic with COP26 was this loss and damage budget where it's proposed £100 billion a year be set aside for those countries that are already suffering so much. But as far as I know, very little has come uh, of that uh, promise for the loss and damage budget. But certainly, yeah, we as the prosperous global north are inflicting dreadful damage on so many uh, countries in the global south. Um, It's interesting to see that we are now being affected quite radically. California, the Western states of the United States have had some real destruction. Kentucky, we've got um, troubles in in Japan now with typhoons, and we had those floods in Europe. Uh, So, you know, we are being affected. Perhaps that's going to nudge us into more action, recognizing that while we're affected, other people have been really life-threatened by what's happening to them. The droughts and things in the Horn of Africa now going on for seven years They've had no no crops because of a seasonal breakdown in weather conditions. Yes, we've got to think globally. We have our common home and we must recognise our responsibilities to one another. And finally, Bishop John, it's the classic question, but I think one that needs asking. For those in, in, in our pews, our, our Catholic community, when they look at this and they might get quite disheartened by by all the things that are happening around the world and they might want to do something about it. Obviously, you know, we, we believe in in working for the common good. But what, what would you say to them if they feel a little bit of inertia or a little bit of a difficulty in stepping forward and making some of those relational changes you've been talking about? Well, I think now there's there's so much information on so many websites, diocesan newsletters and parish newsletters of even the smallest things that we can do, which will make a change. Pope Francis had said that uh, drops of water eventually put together make a reservoir. And it is in those little changes that you and I can actually make a difference today. And it doesn't mean great deprivation in our lives at all, but it means a, a, a more careful use of the resources that are freely available to us. And that sense of promoting a good uh, which will build up. I'm confident that we we will make the, the whole question of the urgency much more prominent and that our political leaders will take a real notice and provide the policies which will save the environment. Bishop John Arnold there on how the Catholic community is making its voice heard on climate change and the need for urgent action. Right, that's it for September's At the Foot of the Cross. Thanks very much for listening. I certainly hope that we've given you just a little bit of an insight into what's going on here at the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. My thanks, of course, to Bishop John Arnold, Bishop Paul McAleenan, and last, but by no means least, our General Secretary, Canon Christopher Thomas. At the Foot of the Cross is pretty much in its infancy. This one is episode six. So if you know someone who'd enjoy listening, do please recommend the podcast to them. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Audible, TuneIn and Stitcher. Just search for At the Foot of the Cross on your platform of choice. So thank you very much for listening and I'll look forward to your company again next time. Bye for now. <laughs>